0: Yeah, it's pretty clear. I ain't no size two, but I can shake it, shake it, like I'm supposed to do. Cause I got that bone bone that all the boys
1: chase all the right junk all the right places. Welcome to what she said on 1059 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. The first official long weekend of summer is here, and as soon as this show is over, I'm off on vacation for a week. If you're looking for great women across Canada, I encourage you to check out what she said with Candace Sampson on all podcast platforms, and I'll be back July 17th with a new show. Stick around today, though, because the lineup of women are incredible. If you're feeling unsettled with the disturbing findings at former residential schools, that's exactly how you should be feeling, says my first guest, Paulette Regan. Paulette is the author of Unsettling the Settler Within and has been directly involved with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada since its inception. She joins me today to share how non-Indigenous Canadians can do their part to ensure truth and reconciliation aren't just empty words. Climate change may not be great for us, but for the tick population, they're having a love in with their numbers exploding across the country. And over 88% of the reported cases of Lyme disease in 2016 were from Ontario, Quebec, and Nova Scotia, according to Health Canada. Dr. Jade Savage is the instigator of the eTick project, a citizen science tick monitoring tool and information dissemination platform in Canada and joins me to share why every Canadian should have this app on their phone. It seems like only yesterday we couldn't leave the house because of COVID, and now we're shuttered in again due to the heat. Thankfully, Anne Brody is tireless and joins me to share the best in entertainment this week with No Sudden Move on HBO, The God Committee and Paper Spiders on TVOD, and The Hilarious Motherland on Sundance Now. Meridian Credit Union is back with the third in an eight-part series on personal finance. And this week, Nancy Taylor joins me to discuss generational wealth and how the sandwich generation should be discussing money with their kids and their parents. Finally, during the pandemic, the number of Canadian children facing food insecurity and hunger rose from an estimated 12% to 19% nationally. This summer, Food Banks Canada is aiming to send 150,000 healthy food packs to food banks across the country to ensure that Canadian children have access to healthy food all summer. Tanya Little, Chief Development and Partnerships Officer, Food Banks Canada, joins me to share the details. It's another full week at what she said with interviews that empower, educate and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 1059 the region hey, hey. Ooh, you
0: know hey. <laughs> Now that the long houses breed superstition you force us to send our toddlers
1: away to your schools where they're
0: taught to despise their traditions.
1: Many Canadians were shook to the core this past month with the discovery of a mass grave at a Kamloops residential school. As of this date, we have now sadly discovered 572 children. This truth has left us unsettled, and that, according to my next guest, is exactly how we should feel in order to move forward. Paulette Regan has been directly involved with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada since inception and is the author of Unsettling the Settler Within, which emphasizes the need for non-Indigenous people to do our own decolonizing work through education, critical reflection, and action. Paulette, I am so pleased you
2: agreed to join me today. Well, thank you very much, Candice. It's a pleasure to join you today.
1: Indigenous people in Canada have been telling us this for years, and we have been not listening. Now the truth is there and we are a little unsettled. How do we move forward from this point? Do you feel that there's been a shift in the space when it comes to uh, our relations and how we
2: can really truly reconcile? I'm not prepared yet to say there's been a shift. There may well have been. I I I, I absolutely agree. I think that uh, even though survivors have been telling us this particular truth and a whole lot more truths, you know, we've been very very reluctant to hear those truths and respond to them. We're at a particular moment where things may change. I guess for me, I I wonder next month when the news cycle has faded. What are people going to be doing then? The story of children's unmarked burials and missing children, you know, children who went away and, and, and their families never knew what happened to them, is, is a huge part of the story of, of the relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people in this country. It's not that, as you said, not that the truth hasn't been out there, it's that we haven't really been listening.
1: What would you say to people, you know, I saw this reaction a lot, uh, when this news was first came out was, um, the, well, that wasn't me. I didn't do it. I wasn't involved. What would you say to people who, who say that? Because it it's, it's tone deaf for starters, in my opinion, but I also, I think, um, maybe they lack an understanding of what, what it does mean for us as a society to, Mm -hmm. to have that discovery.
2: Yeah, I think that um, when people don't equate their own personal behaviors with this larger issue of Canada's responsibility, we, we as a, as a collective society, benefit from all of the things that were taken from Indigenous peoples. You know, we benefit from the lands, we benefit from the resources, um, and we do that collectively as a society. And so, as a society, we have a We have a collective responsibility to address this issue. And I would also say that, you know, Canada is a nation of, of, uh, we're treaty nations. Indigenous peoples have rights. They have inherent rights, they have treaty rights, they have constitutional rights. And all of this is well-recognized by the Canadian government. So um, this is part of who we are as Canada. And so um, I I think that that's really important for people to understand that say, you know, well, I wasn't directly involved. Well, realistically, you know, probably the majority of Canadians were not directly involved with the residential school systems. That doesn't absolve us of the responsibility to... Address the issues that that come from that.
1: So, I want to talk about what are, where what do we do to learn to
2: reach out to build bridges. Where do we go from here? I think that you know if you if you look at the TRC um, definition of um, uh, reconciliation, it was about establishing and maintaining respectful and I really emphasize that word respectful relationships, which sounds on one level, easy, but it's actually extremely difficult. It's reconciliation is hard work. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of relearning and unlearning the old history and our old image that we, you know, we had of ourselves as a, a nation. I call it the nation of peacemakers, you know. Um, we 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 have that image and and the reality, the truths that are being revealed do not match that myth of, you know, h- how we hold ourselves, that, that image we have of ourselves. And so a huge part of it is the learning piece. It's the gaining knowledge and understanding. And how do we do that? We do that through education. Mm-hmm. The commission itself put a huge emphasis on education. You know, um, it, it's it's without knowledge and understanding, you can't make changes because you don't have, you, you know, it's like you've got no understanding, no, con- no way to contextualize. What you're hearing.
1: Are there some indigenous leaders that we should be following, listening to, that you would recommend we should, you know, look to for some tips on, on on actually moving forward with what we should be doing?
2: You know, certainly on the national front, there are many, you know, well-known indigenous leaders that that have been speaking about this for years. There are the um, TRC commissioners. Uh, there, there are, um, and I would say a wealth of. Uh, provincial and territorial leaders that have a lot to teach us when they're talking about these issues. Uh, So I think that just, and we won't always necessarily agree with, you know, with every indigenous leader that we hear, but there again, I think it's also extremely important to get that diversity of opinion. For some people, reconciliation is dead. You know, I mean, and, and, and for others, um, they're saying, well, no, you know, we're working on this and we're, you know, are we where we need to be? Like the, the, uh, the adoption of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which was the key, a key recommendation, a key call to action of the TRC is, um, is, is a significant step forward. Um, what does that look like in reality? Well, then you, know, you start to sort of think, realize that there are many different layers to that. So I think in terms of leadership, There are so many um, Indigenous leaders that have so much to, and they've been saying it all along. It's not like they've all just, you know, been saying these things for the last, they've been saying these for, I mean, if you look at the whole history of the Indigenous rights movement in this country, it's, you know, started back basically, you know, as soon as colonization started happening. So in terms of the TRC and in terms of, you know, all of the things that we're grappling with right now. Um, survivors have always been leaders without survivors there would have been no trc so survivors have so much to teach us and one of the things that they absolutely wanted um, from from to come out of the trc was this education piece they wanted people to to understand about the residential school system and about colonization and the impacts of the, the, the history and the legacy of that broader piece. So so I I think that there, there are so many diverse opinions and we benefit from listening to all of those because it helps us to realize that this is complex, but we shouldn't at the same time, we need to try not to be overwhelmed by the complexity. And that's the that's the personal piece. So it's personal politic it's personal decolonizing and it's political decolonizing and it's institutional decolonizing. So it's, you know, there again, it's it's happening, but we begin with ourselves. So what is you know, like what is my work in this? And then how do I take that and go out in the world with it?
1: Yeah, before we can take a seat at the table and and build those bridges, we have to educate ourselves, right? Yeah. Yeah.
2: So people can go to, uh, they can find your book uh, where, like all bookstores? Yeah. And it's on Amazon, UBC press. um, uh, You know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's it's libraries have it. So, um, so it's, it's, it's readily available and, and there are a whole wealth of, I mean, when you look at the, when you look at the, the, the books around all of this, I mean, it's just, there's so much and, and perhaps a good place for many people to, to start if they're not sure is with their local library, because mo- many, many libraries now have particular, you know, uh, reading lists and whatnot for people to, to, uh, to, to start with. I really,
1: really love your recommendation about, you know, book clubs. Uh, I think that would be a good place for what she said to start, actually. Uh, uh, and for the community, what she said listeners to start is, is perhaps a book club. So I really love that recommendation. And uh, for the full um, report, Truth and Reconciliation Commission report and, and those action steps, uh, the website is the best place for people to go for that?
2: Yeah, the website, the the um, uh, National Council for Truth and Reconciliation's website, everything is online, and plus a whole bunch more stuff. I mean, there's just a wealth of information, um, uh, and also out uh, out here in um, in in BC where I am, um, the I R the Iris uh, Center for History and Dialogue also has a lot of resources. Um, uh, that are that that are available readily online. So there's just a wealth of, of of information available. And I really encourage people to to start doing that work.
1: All right, Paulette, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, you're incredible. And I, I'm so grateful you you shared your your wisdom with us today. And I hope
2: you'll join me again. Well, thank you so much, Candace. I really appreciated the opportunity.
3: Can't you see that that poverty's profiting you
0: my country tis all thy people you're dying
2: have a story for what she said email us at 1059theregion.com welcome back to what she said with candace sampson on 1059 the region
1: After a recent stroll around the town of Gananoque, I found a tick on my neck. I hadn't been camping, hiking in thick woods, or rolling around in a field. I was simply walking about town, and that alarmed me because I was under an illusion that ticks are only found in the wild, and I'm putting that in air quotes. Dr. Jade Savage is a full professor at Bishop's University in Sherbrooke, where she has been teaching and conducting research in the field of entomology since 2004. She is the instigator of the e project, a citizen science tick monitoring tool and information dissemination platform in Canada, and joins me now to share why you should have this app on your phone. Welcome to the show, Jade.
3: Good morning. So I was surprised to be bitten by a tick out and about, but I suspect you probably aren't surprised to hear that. Well, I mean, considering that we've received close to 10,000 submissions over the last three months, um... That is not a surprise. So there are lots of ticks in this country and their distribution and species composition varies a lot based on where you're found or even just your province of residence. So there's really a patchwork of patterns, not just one blanket um, population all across the country.
1: So what is the tick situation in Canada right now then? Um, Because I know that their population is exploding,
3: but how much has it exploded? Well, we have to take it species by species, because again, the species that are of interest are those, well, I mean, of medical interest are those that can transmit pathogens um, relevant to humans and their pets. Uh, but there are about 40 species of ticks in Canada, but only a handful that do fit these criteria. So we're following all of these species, but we're keeping a closer eye on, for example, uh, the black tick in Eastern Canada, and then the Western black-legged tick in BC, because these are the two main vectors of the bacteria that causes Lyme disease, for example. So these two species, their distribution has changed uh, a lot over the last two or three decades. I mean, they were not even, uh, especially out East, they were not found in this country a few decades ago. So I did not grow up thinking about ticks. so, I do spend a lot more time thinking about them now. And so they have moved northwards. Um, and again, it's not done, homo- it's not homogenous. They follow a variety of different routes, and their abundance might be more uh, obvious some years than others, but globally, And here I'm talking about the black-legged tick in Eastern Canada. We do have more black-legged ticks and they are distributed more widely than they used to be. And that expansion keeps on going. And this is why we keep an eye on um, that species.
1: And it's not just Lyme disease we have to worry about with ticks, right? There are other diseases that are harmful to humans that they carry.
3: There are a number of other tick-borne diseases most of which uh, at the moment have a very low prevalence in the country so i'm not saying that they're not there at all however if we compare with um, some of the american populations for the same species there doesn't seem to be many cases so for example if one thinks of um Rocky Mountain spotted fever. Uh, This is disseminated by another species, not the black-legged tick, by um, the American dog tick. Well, sorry about that, not the American dog tick, but a group that includes the American dog tick. And um, there are very few cases. And so if we're looking in terms of the most medically relevant species, we're really looking into the black-legged tick and the Western black-legged tick. But you are correct, there are a number of other infections And uh, we are keeping an eye on those other infections to make sure that their prevalence remains low. And if it changes, then, of course, we have to adjust accordingly.
1: Which is why your app is so important, because it tracks all of this. So how does that app work, then, if you could explain to
3: people? Yeah, so just a correction. The app does not track diseases. The app tracks the species of ticks. And so what people do, there's two things they can do. Well, first off, they can look at our public map and they can see where ticks are found in their areas or in areas where they're planning to visit because every dot on the map is a submission by another uh, resident and they can see the species, where it was found, et cetera. Now, if if you found a tick, so and you did, the first thing to do is to, of course, remove that tick safely. We provide some information for that and then take picture that picture has to be clear good lighting good focus and then upload that picture onto either our website etic.ca or on our mobile app which you can find um easily it's the etic app and so you upload your picture answer a few questions where did you find the tick when did you find the tick was it on a human or an animal and then you submit so this all takes about two minutes and um When this happens, a member of my team will get a notification, and based on your province of residence, that person will be a different person, and they will receive your notification, look at the picture, and if the picture and the rest of the information is adequate, they will identify your submission. And then two things will happen. Instantly, you will get a message that says, the tick that bit you is species X. It is of medical relevance or not, and if it is, here are um, the instructions that you should be following based on that species and also based on your province of residence. The instructions vary depending on where you live because the resources are different between provinces. So this is what you get as a resident. At the same time, a dot will appear on the interactive map and in that sense you also contribute to informing others of what ticks uh, have been found in your area and then i'm going to add a third layer this whole global picture allows me and my colleagues to use that data in a scientific context to be able to track changes modification in the ranges where do people get in contact with ticks because of course the dots on that map represent where people have been in contact with ticks. It does not mean that the ticks are not there in the empty spots. It just means no one has been there um, and submitted a tick. So that's how it works. All right.
1: Excellent. Well, I want people to be able to use this. It's such an easy app. I have it on my phone now. Uh, So one more time, where can people find it, download it, share their information?
3: On the Apple Store, on the, um, the Google Play Store, and on etig.ca. So all of these are acceptable routes for submissions. And yes, that's, it's as easy as that. All right.
1: Wonderful. I thank you so much for joining me. This is an incredibly helpful app. Uh, amazing
3: job. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on.
1: It seems like only yesterday we were locked in the house because of the virus, and now we're locked in the house because of the heat. Thankfully, <laughs> Ann Brody is here uh, with lots of entertainment while we try to stay cool in our houses. Ann,
4: what do you got for us this week? Oh, my God, there's so much. What a variety. Comedy, tragedy. Uh, it's just wonderful. I want to start with um, uh, No Sudden Move, which is a bit of a... Um, Anomaly, it's Steven Soderbergh. It's his new noir period gang comedy. And to my mind, it's almost identical to Noah Hawley's Fargo season four. There's so many similarities between the two and I'll list them on the website. Uh, but it's about gangs in the 50s in Kansas City, which was also what Fargo was about. And it stars Brendan Fraser, Don Cheadle, Benicio Del Toro, Karen Culkin, John Hamm. So it's, it's warring gangs, Italian and black gangs, same as Fargo, and John Hemp's the investigator looking into it. Well, a couple of guys are assigned to hold a man's family hostage while he's sent down to his boss's office to get a hold of um, a document. So that's basically the movie. Um, it is so layered and funny. Uh, it's in Kansas and Detroit. So now this is important because he winds up making a big con- contribution to the auto industry and uncovering an incredible scheme of corruption so and, and it moves so fast it's just great and towards the end matt Damon shows up <laughs> honestly it's so much fun big it's, a, it's fun. an
1: all-star cast and i really loved watching the trailer i have to tell you i really love don Cheadle. i just think he's incredible me too
4: and, and, me but you too. know who
1: else i'm a little bit like i've always loved he's such a great uh, actor is Benicio del Toro I just I like uh, him in everything for some reason he's just really intense but he really
4: embraces his roles doesn't he and I also see a lot of warmth in him which I think uh, is appealing as well and uh, Kieran Culkin is yeah. really good I gotta tell you I interviewed that kid when he was five years old so I've been watching him. So you're a little bit,
1: you're a little bit invested in him. I like that.
4: That's true. I am. I am in all the okay. Calkins. I like them.
1: Okay. Can we talk about the God <laughs> committee? Because that was really, oh, uh, oh yeah. that just, I was, I was stressed watching the trial. I know.
4: I know. That's why I'm calling it a, a medical thriller because there's a team of um, medical staff, a lawyer and a nurse who are deciding who is going to get a heart that suddenly shows up in this New York hospital when a 15 year old is killed on his bike. So they have just a handful of of, uh, recipients who could take it right away. They have one hour to decide who's going to get it. So they go through everything, the the moral situation, the health situation, uh, their attitudes towards life. But a fellow comes up to them and says, look, I'm gonna give you 25 million if you'll give it to my son. And the son just—he's a—he's a wife beater. He's—he's uh, he's been in an accident. He's going to die if he doesn't get a heart. So they have to start weighing twenty-five million dollars versus the morality of someone who—who who does not lead a good life. So it's—it's it's, why are these people talking about morality so much? Because it matters in a case like this. So. Oh, I can't tell you anymore. It's so good. <laughs> Kelsey, Kelsey Grammer stars with Gene Graffalo and, and Coleman Domingo and Julia Stiles and Kelsey Grammer for all his politics and Trumpism. He is a great actor and he is so grounded and solid in this thing. It's just incredible. He plays the lead heart surgeon. So, wow. Yeah,
1: it looks, it looks intense. And to tell you the truth, You know, it, I think anybody watching that is going to be asking themselves, what would I do in that situation? (laughs) You can't help, you can't help it. You have to paper
4: spiders. That looks very, oh uh, my God, it is so well done. And I read the synopsis and I'm going, I don't want to see this. And I'm so glad I did. Uh, Lily Taylor plays a recent widow and Stefania Levy owen plays her daughter now the two of them are, are mourning what's, what happened and the mother is becoming really anxious and she's developing uh, fears. So she thinks the neighbor next door, whose name is Brody, is after her. She says she hears him on the roof. She says he's sending electric signals into the house to, get, to put her in pain. She takes out a restraining order. She has the police over all the time. And of course, none of that was true. And the stress that she caused him cost him his life, Um, and it's about her paranoid, delusional spiral into madness, and Lily is such a great actor, and she's underserved, in my mind, she hasn't done enough work, Um, and this new kid is great, so that's really worth seeing, Paper Spiders. All right, Uh, okay, we got about literally 30
1: seconds here, you loved Motherland. Oh,
4: I was laughing my head off. I don't just sit there and binge watch something completely, but they sent me the whole thing. I watched the whole thing. I feel guilty and I feel so satisfied. It's four British mums in London uh, in their forties and the one stay at home dad, who's one of them. And they, they cook up a lot of schemes and they try and cheat their way into the, the school that's not just not the best school, but the one closest to them. Um, one girl changes religion to do it <laughs> it's just hysterical it rem- and Joanna Lumley's in it she plays the mother of one of them and to my mind this series is just absolutely fabulous
1: all right so for all of these and more much more while you're escaping the heat this weekend you can go to talk.com and Ann, you'll be back next week see you next
4: week
2: we're
1: jumping into the third part in a series on personal finance with meridian credit union and today's focus is on intergenerational wealth anyone who is part of the sandwich generation that is middle-aged adults who are caring for both elderly parents and their own children will want to pay particular attention to this one nancy taylor senior wealth advisor at meridian credit union joins me now to discuss welcome back to the show nancy a pleasure to be back, Candice. I'm really excited about this conversation. You know, Dillis uh, DeCruz from Meridian and um, Kathleen uh, Kingsbury, we did a, a live about awkward money conversations, a Facebook live about this. And so I think this is something most people will really struggle with, um, particularly when it comes to approaching your parents about money. So let's start there. Uh, when should you get involved with your parents' finances?
5: As early as possible. Um, in my practice, I see a lot of times people wait till a, um, a healthcare crisis arises, and at a time where people are stressed because of the, the parents had a healthcare uh, event, and people are under pressure to have these conversations, they're a lot more forced. Um, so we recommend, you know, starting in your 50s, um, having simple conversations. And then as, you, as your parents start aging into their 60s and 17, 70s, their uh, financial awareness really starts to decline. So the more information you can get in that 50s and 60s stage to help support them in the event of a healthcare event, uh, the better. And you can start having those conversations with all the other children involved as well. So it doesn't just rely on one person. So there's some great tips out there about how, as a family, we can all take a part in this journey about having uh, the ability to support our aging parents down the road.
1: I think the first step is to normalize the conversation. It's really not a taboo topic, and it's not just, I think a lot of people think about their parents' wealth and end of life, and really, you know, it's not just death. It's, it's, as you said, it, it could be illness, it could be where they're going to live in the future uh, and how you're going to manage that, right?
5: Yeah. So when you're sitting down having these conversations, these are these um, great uh, things that creep up that people question. So ask a lot of questions about how your parents feel about certain things like aging in place versus living in a home. Um, Look at their finances together if if they're comfortable with that. Understanding what, you know, income's coming in and, and expenses are going out. Um, avoid using words that uh, are triggers. Try to keep it very open ended. Um, ensure those conversations are a little short and more frequent versus these big long family meetings that everybody kind of dreads. And try not to personalize with what you're hearing. Um, you know, everybody comes to the table with their own personal background, their own family dynamics, um, their own, um, you know, whether they have children or, or no children. So when parents start releasing this information to us, try to keep an open mind, try to keep these meetings short, and try to gather as much information as possible. And that's usually what I'm recommending in my practice when I'm talking to my clients about starting to have those conversations with their adult children about their personal finances and and what kind of support they want as they age.
1: I'm curious, Nancy, do you ever uh, work with um, people and their parents together as a financial advisor to have these discussions? Is that common?
5: It's not common um, in smaller communities it could be more common than in bigger rural centers. Um, but we have great aging well guides that we give both generations, you know people that are in their 60s and 70s and people that are in their 30s and 40s to help them and help them prepare if they have a financial event or a, a health event. But also to help uh, the older people get their uh, resources in order and their documents in order and things like this. So there's great guides out there to help organize them because it's hard to know where to start.
1: Right, and I would say at a very basic level, just even having all of those numbers, uh, you know, where the accounts are, what's held where, because as we know, we we do we sort of have things all over the place, and what a scramble that is for somebody who doesn't even know where to start. Right. And nine times out of
5: 10, it starts when there's, a plenty, when there's that healthcare event. So in a perfect world, it would be great to sit down with your kids to say, um, you know, this is how your mom and dad feel about life support. And then the, the kids aren't going to want to hear things like that. It's pretty traumatic. But they'll remember those words in the event they have to decision um, and act on it down the road. And what a great gift you can provide them. So having all those conversations are such a, such a gift for both generations.
1: So let's move back. Let's move on to having these conversations with our kids, because by having it with our kids, we are now making it easier for them to have the conversation with us when it's our turn to have that conversation about sort of our uh, end of life uh, uh, wishes. Um, so when do we start having these conversations with our kids, and and is there sort of appropriate age to start?
5: So start as early as you can, you know, when, when kids are very small and these are things they don't learn in school, it's not part of our education system. So starting small about finances and saving and different kinds of saving strategies with young children. And then as they start to head into their adult years, um, you're going to want to try to guide them as well, about because it's very overwhelming for that generation. So share experiences that you've had with finances, share the failures Uh, Share the successes because we all learn from failing uh, with our financial journey and we learn from our mistakes. So this is great treasured information that we can provide our kids to help guide them. Um, Really uh, talk to them in a very uh, non-lecturing way and encourage them to go sit with your financial advisor to talk about it. if If it's something that, you know, mom and dad, they don't really know everything all the time, right? So sometimes you need a third party. provide those great conversations. We have uh, books we recommend at each age of their learning journey, whether it's The Wealthy Barber to start with. Um, And Bank of Canada has great tutorials, like uh, 10-15 minute tutorials on everything from understanding what a stock is versus uh, all the different kinds of debt that's available, what's good debt, what's bad debt, different kinds of savings strategies. So Bank of Canada has And there are many blogs out there. So we often will send our millennials that information. And parents love that because uh, we're teaching their children how to be uh, financially set down the road.
1: I just want to jump in here quickly, too. And when you get to the point where your kids are teenagers, as I have two of them, uh, there becomes a point where you no longer know how to tie your own shoes. And when you get to that point and your teens think that about you, it's a good time to hook them up with a financial advisor because they will often listen to somebody else and not you.
5: My son's a great example. He's 18 going into second year university. I've been trying to send him this great student budget I have that I, I give so many of my clients uh, children, but mom doesn't know as much. He doesn't see me in the same space as my clients' kids do. So I'm recommending he go sit down with one of my colleagues. And that's a prime example. But, you know, kids today, they want to try to go it alone. And it's just very overwhelming of you know, where to start and how to start. Um, so a financial advisor can kind of walk them through the steps and, and baby steps along the way to help it resonate with them and prepare them for down the road.
1: Okay, we don't have a lot of time left, but let's move on to that sandwich generation, because that is where the stress lies. It's for the people who are currently managing parents and kids. Any advice yes. there? Yes.
5: Yes. One in every seven um, middle-aged uh, Canadians are caregivers. We have uh, 8 million nationally that are caregivers, the bulk of them being women. And, and this is kind of where I sit being 54 is I have a mom that's had a stroke and I have a teenage teenager that's in second year universities and we're busy. So uh, we have to really focus on us first. So we have to focus on making sure that uh, our retirement plan is set. That we've done a really good job saving for the inevitable. Um, we, to really educate ourselves on the resources that are out there, because it doesn't all fall on our shoulders. So, the more we educate ourselves leading into it, when that healthcare crisis happens with one of two, you know, could be the child, it could be the, the adult, that we are really prepared a little bit more had we not read all the information on the support systems that are out there, um, understanding what our parents health care benefits look like, um, making sure that we resist the urge to tap into our own retirement plan, like our money, because the reality is a lot of us will have to shave our hours back to look after our loved ones. I have a client that has a mother that's aging and she was in the middle of putting her in a nursing home and trying to figure out what that looks like and all the waiting lists around that. And her daughter got breast cancer and she's single. So she had to take time off work and eventually retire to support both of those women in her life. And had she not done a good job preparing, uh, it would have been a lot more stressful for her. So, I mean, she wasn't 100% prepared for what happened, but she was a little more prepared because she had had those financial conversations with me leading into ensuring her retirement was set before all these things happened. So if you're not sure your retirement's set and you have all those stressors on top of that, you can imagine it's a lot.
1: That's a a really excellent example of putting your own oxygen mask on first, uh, particularly when it comes to finances. You have to make sure you're taking care of yourself before you can take care of others. Um, I want people to be able to connect, obviously, with you or a financial advisor at Meridian. So where should they go?
5: They should go to um, visit the uh, Meridian website, which is www.meridiancu.ca. There's advisors that are in the community uh, that you're living in. And just start those financial conversations because it's a great investment of your time and your loved ones' time.
1: Okay. And I just want to point out to people that if they'd like to go catch the first two episodes of this masterclass we're doing on personal finance, they could go to whatshesaidtalk.com said talk.com and uh, find them there. Thank you for joining me today, Nancy. As always, this was very informative and I, I love uh, talking to you.
5: My pleasure. Look forward to our next one.
2: Stick around. More What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 1059 The Region.
1: During the pandemic, the number of Canadian children facing food insecurity and hunger rose from an estimated 12% to 19% nationally. This summer, Food Banks Canada is aiming to send 150,000 healthy food packs to food banks across the country to ensure that Canadian children have access to healthy food this summer. Tanya Little is Food Banks Canada's Chief Development and Partnerships Officer. Tanya oversees all donations and corporate and community partnerships. Over the past year, Tanya and her team have raised tens of millions of dollars to ensure food banks have been there for Canadians throughout the pandemic and joins me today to discuss one of their summer initiatives. Thank you so much for joining me today, Tanya. Thanks for having us, Candace. That's a disturbing statistic, 12% to 19%. I mean, it may not seem a lot, but when you think about it, that's a lot of people in particular children impacted by this. Um, How did you come to these numbers? So I think what's really, let's start at the beginning. Prior to COVID, we
0: were seeing about 1.1 million visits coming to food banks, of which a very large swath of those were actually children. When you look at food security as a broad scope, you know, that number does shrink a little bit when you're looking at the total number of people that are food insecure right across the country. But we've always relied on our hunger count research to be able to provide us with a real pulse on the clientele that access food through food banking. Um, And so what we knew is that as numbers were increasing uh, with food bank over the pandemic, we knew that
1: proportionally
0: we would see a higher number of children, unfortunately.
1: Okay. So how do you think right now, like we're coming out of the pandemic, there's hope on the horizon, uh, but I've personally noticed that food prices are rising fast and they're starting to eat up more and more of my budget. So how is this affecting people who already rely on the food bank or were maybe just on the sort of the edge of needing it?
0: Well, you hit on exactly the right point, Candice. We have been actually immensely fortunate across Canada that the government provided a base level of social supports for those that needed that extra support during the pandemic as those social supports like CERB wind down and what we have to look at is is the economy growing at the pace that people are able to get back to work where they can afford uh, those changes to food budgets etc and in while there we we're anticipating a bit of a gap right so we think those social programs are going to wind down and we think that Employment rates won't quite go back at the same pace. The economy won't quite recover at the same pace. And so we're anticipating that we're going to see those numbers continue to uh, increase at the food bank level. What we know is that about 50% of food banks saw a pretty significant increase in the number of clients that walked through their door. It looks different in every market, but anywhere between a 30% increase to a 200% increase in the number of new clients Uh happened with food banks across the country so if that's all while there were incredible social supports available we do definitely have our radar up that when those social supports end that people may need to rely on the services and support of community food banks and organizations like them
1: so you may actually see a bigger increase of need coming out of the pandemic than during the pandemic
0: absolutely but we're also i mean i want to remain hopeful just like you've said you know I'm certainly hopeful that the economy uh, begins its climb back, that industries are able to start to pick up business and recover and that people are out kind of getting back in and spending. Um, But I do think, you know, people have also um, spent down a lot of their reserves in the last year. Um, You know, we are seeing higher levels of debt. I do think people are going to be conservative. um, And I I do think there, there probably will still be a bit of frugalness. And so... Um, I think these are all pieces we're watching for. We're watching for those indicators of the economy really starting to make a good, healthy return for people returning to work as sectors reopen, those sectors that were most impacted, um, and that people are starting to spend back in the economy. Um, If that's the case, then in fact, we may not see a huge spike with food banks. Um, But realistically, just looking at 2008 as our benchmark indicator, we know that that return was slow.
1: I have a very basic understanding of how the food banks work and, and the amazing work you do. However, I'm curious to know what does a healthy food pack consist of and how are you targeting it specifically to youth and children?
0: Absolutely. So we actually work with a dietitian to develop our pack contents and it's going to contain things like Uh, low sugar, high fiber cereals. Uh, uh, It's going to contain things like hummus or uh, chicken, high fiber snacks. So it could be things like um, uh, seaweed snacks or it could be things like whole wheat crackers that get paired with um, that hummus or the chicken. And then the best part is we also include a fresh food stipend that a food bank receives to go along with the pack. And what the food bank does is include things like milk, cheese, fruits, vegetables. So there's a complement of uh, a variety of items for children to be able to mix and match and have snacks and meals that can complement um, you know what their family provides. Again, this is not a substitute. For food that a a normal family would get. But if a a family is accessing the food bank for other programs and services, this is an add on to help them address the needs of having kids at home full time that, you know, maybe aren't having access to all the other programs and supports that might help them offset that food need.
1: How how are these youth so identified? Uh, How are you doing that? So, Uh, Local food
0: banks have a lot of really incredible, well-established relationships with um, camps, with community groups like Boys and Girls Clubs, uh, or Big Brothers Big Sisters, uh, or other independent camp groups that run throughout the summer months, uh, including municipal programs. And often those food banks will work with those programs that are targeting young people in um high need or vulnerable communities so that they're able to get food out to those kids in community Um, and they do that through I think a lot of relationships that they have throughout the year and that includes both schools and as I said those camps and other formal programs and it's less about targeting like oh just Susie at one camp is going to get that one pack it's more about looking at where's that maybe camp happening in the community? And is that an at risk community? And if so, how can we add support so that the community at a large, uh, at large, isn't feeling as much stress and burden? And also children aren't stigmatized or called out, right? The children in, a, in, that, in that region or in that market will benefit from that program.
1: So important that they're not uh, singled out. I often at the grocery store will grab that food that bag at the cash that they that they make for the food banks of Canada I often will grab one throw it on the on uh, uh, with the cashier and I'm wondering is that the best way to help or is there you know what is the best way to help you right now uh, if people are listening and they want to help because I I know Canadians are deeply concerned for each other so how can we do that
0: So I think it's really important that people give in ways that make them feel proud and connected. So I think that's the first thing. And absolutely that means different things to different people. So for some people that's purchasing that bag at the grocery store and knowing that that food's going to help a community food bank. If you were to say, what's the best way to have impact? I would say donate money that allows the food bank to buy the food that they need just in time. It also allows them to supplement the food that gets donated from donors of, of the community or food drives or at the retail level that allows them to buy things like dairy, fresh produce, protein, um, but they may not otherwise get donated. So it gives them the most versatility. And I also think a really important note, it allows them to buy food that are reflective of their own communities. So we, you know, we shouldn't make assumptions that everybody looks like us. And so being able to buy, buy foods that specifically address the needs at you know, within a particular quarter or a particular half year of who's coming into that particular food bank allows the food banks to be responsive um, and respectful and inclusive to the clients that they serve.
1: All right. I love it. And I love all the work you're doing. And thank you so much for continuing to put your heart and soul into this every day. Uh, could you share where people can find out more information if they want to help out? Absolutely. I would encourage
0: folks to go to www.foodbankscanada.ca. You can also follow along on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, and our handle is at foodbanks Canada. I would also just suggest that if you're looking to give back in your local community, you want to help your own neighbor next door, um, you can use our Find a Food Bank feature on our webpage, and that'll actually direct you right back to the closest food
1: bank to your postal code. Incredible. Thank you so much for joining me today, Tanya. Thank you, Candace. That's it for What She Said for this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com. And be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to re-listen to this episode and find full details for all of today's guests. I'll be back next week with more What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Hey, hey. Ooh, you
2: know your is hey. <laughs> Previous episodes of What She Said on 105.9 The Region.com.